welcome to Wild Research Bites and a new episode. And today we have Oli back from South Africa. Hey, welcome. everybody. Nice to be back. Yay. So today we're going to talk about the South Africa course that you took now during the winter. And with us, we have Sabrina Dressel, also a PhD student here. Welcome. Hello. So Oli, take the, the lead. All right. All right. <laughs> so today, yeah, like Emily mentioned, we're going to talk about the exciting course PhD level course that we had in South Africa, organized by SLU and some other collaborators. And yeah. What uh, was the name of the course? The name of the course is Global Perspectives on Adaptive Wildlife Management. And we're going to go into the title a little bit more and talk about what adaptive management is. So Sabrina was uh, an instructor in the course and she's on her final year of PhD. Is that correct? Not yet, but soon. In soon. my, in mm. my third year. Okay. So I stretch it out quite a bit. Yeah. And I was actually participating in the course as a student. So yeah, what were your initial impressions about the course, Sabrina? I think it was one of the most amazing experiences I ever had. It was fun to come along and it challenged me as a teacher. I learned a lot and I'm grateful that I had a chance to go there. Even so, you're always busy in a PhD. It gave me a lot. And I think it gave me a lot of energy. Yeah, cool. that sounds really good. As a student, I got the same impression. And it was also like the best course probably I've done so far as a student. And it was just the students and the teachers coming together and the dynamics that we had in the course and all the interesting topics that we were discussing. And also the learning environment that we had, which uh, we're going to talk a little bit more I'm a bit sad now that I didn't take this course. It's coming back. <laughs> There's another chance. Oh, uh, yeah. Because I, I, I don't know. I wanted to go, but it kind of felt uh, not super topic-wise perfect for my PhD. But we'll see after I hear what you guys say. <laughs> Maybe I missed something. <laughs> yeah, you can always come next did. year. <laughs> awesome. But Sabrina, you were part of organizing the course. So uh, yeah. How did it... like? Um, uh, how did that happen? How how did the course came to be? Um, I think it was a very interesting process because it started off with a quick chat uh, in a hallway, more or less. Because the course convener, uh, it's Joris Kromzit from our department. And he got this course and it was completely new. And he knew that I'm working with adaptive management. And as the title is Global Perspectives on Adaptive Management, or back then it was just adaptive management, he kind of asked me, what I think about the course, and we discussed a few ideas in the hallway, and from there suddenly it took more and more shape over four, five months, and the group grew bigger and bigger. So in the end, we were six, seven people working on it, and I think it became better in the end than we all even uh, thought it would be. So it was a very interesting process, and a lot of discussions and a lot of different ideas, and I mean, that also comes from us coming from different backgrounds, I think. We're a very interdisciplinary group, the course lecturers, but also the students. And I think that only helped to make it more interesting. Hmm. Cool. So you were a teacher and, and Joris yeah. too? So um, Joris, uh, he was a course convener and a teacher. And then he asked me. And from there, kind of, we both asked on different people. So I asked my supervisor, Camilla Sandstrom. She's a political scientist. And she's also working with adaptive management, not only of wildlife. So then she was interested and wanted to come. And then uh, Joris asked, for example, Graham Curley, who's a professor in South Africa, ecologist. So 
then he was in, and another postdoc of yours from South Africa, and then uh, Mariska, um, who's also a professor or associate professor in ecology, so it was a very broad group. And then we met for the first time via Skype. I was like, wow, uh, somehow three, four different countries, different ideas, and then we also had great help from the location, so it's Ensasani Trust. And they have um, one of the founders of the trust and who's also running the camp there, it's Karen Wickers. And she was also a researcher, but now turned educator. So she had a lot of interesting ideas. And then we just chatted about what we all think about adaptive management and how we can make it a very innovative course. Hmm. So for those who don't know what adaptive management is at all, can you explain it? Like It's... I would say it's more than learning by doing, but adaptive management always comes in play if you know there's uncertainty. You don't have total or perfect knowledge of the situation, so you need to be careful and you want to learn. So it's a very strong focus on learning. So you try things and then you have a systematic way of observing, evaluating, in deciding do I want to go forward with that or do I need to make adjustments? Mm. Yeah, And you use it for... Uh, Everything. Like, yeah. Uh, it could be water management, it could be wildlife, beetles. I mean, even in business ideas, you can use adaptive management thinking. It's just that you observe, evaluate and adjust what you're doing in a very systematic way. So it's not the typical what was back in the day kind of trial and error, mm. but you always focus on learning, on getting to know your system better. And not just doing and doing and never <laughs> evaluating at yeah. all. Nice. Yeah. Was this, by the way, the first time you organized a course or have you done it before? I would say I have uh, some years. Uh, I'm working in a, or I'm teaching and co-organizing a human dimension course, a master's level course, which is 12 weeks nearly. So from there, I had some experience on, on the logistics and what to do and and how to schedule things. And I mean, I also have some training or this um, course in educational theory or whatever you call it, uh, I mean, teaching pedag course, pedagogics yeah. and yeah. So that gave some background, but I have to say doing a PhD course was a different level and a different experience. Hmm. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all right. And also in another country, so... Yeah, or, yeah. that was challenging. Mm. That was... Uh, Logistically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get so comfortable running courses in Sweden. You can rely on, you have a room, you have electricity, you know what's happening and you have a timetable that's set. And I think that was one of the big challenges for teachers and students once we were in the camp that nothing really happened exactly on schedule and you had to be flexible and adaptive, mm -hmm. keyword of the course. <laughs> uh, and also we had, for example, uh, mornings without electricity. How do you teach then? Yeah. Yeah. So that was really exciting or challenging because then we had suddenly a emergency generator running on super loud voice and <laughs> everyone had to scream in each other's face and then we just decided we need to go on a field trip. So you fix it somehow. Yeah. Very yeah, very flexible. adaptive process. Yeah, <laughs> that's nice. You get to actually do what you're teaching <laughs> in some way. Yeah. What about the application process? Uh, did you get many applications in total? And how was the screening? Was it difficult to choose which uh, students you're going to take in? Oh, because you got more students yeah. applying than yeah. spots. I think we were really happy with the number of applicants. So we aimed for roughly 20 students to take with us. And we got close to 40 applications, mm. so we really had to sort out or make decisions. And there, of course, we looked where are they from, how far into their PhD are they, and what are the topics. So every student had to write a short motivation, why they think this course is important for them. 
And I think the final selection of a group that came along, it, it was a great mix. We had different countries, nearly, I think, 10 nationalities. Yeah. Hmm? And uh, age-wise, we had a wide range. Uh, it, it was a very diverse group also when it comes to background. We had everything from medicinal plants to uh, wildlife in a Scandinavian context towards savannah ecology. Everything was in there. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, the group dynamics were also accordingly really interesting because of having people from different backgrounds uh, interacting in this course and also bringing their own stake at play. Was it also like a um, women-men uh, distribution? Yeah, we had uh, pretty equal numbers. Hmm. And also one of the things that was really important for us was um, because when we set out, we knew we were going to accept students from South Africa or African countries. And then, of course, we had Swedish students, but also in general, European applicants. So we wanted to have a balance there. And uh, in the end, we took 19 students and nine of them came from uh, African countries. So I think that was a nice mixture. And it was also definitely contributing to the learning because suddenly we talked about what are actually our possibilities for for doing what we want. What are the challenges in wildlife management or in education to become a wildlife researcher? And that was very interesting to contrast. Hmm. Because the course was uh, students from, from here uh, and also students from, from South Africa, right? Yeah. Like, mm. And, and we, had co yeah, we had uh, students also from Mozambique and Botswana and yeah, South Africa. And then from Canada, Sweden, Belgium. Uh, Norway. Norway, yeah. yeah. So it was very, very diverse. And that was also something we wanted to highlight or want, what we wanted to work actively with in the course. So with most of our activities, we tried to pair up students from different countries. So even they haven't met each other before, we kicked it off in, in uh, December. Everyone met on Skype, which was exciting. And then we made pairs where always one European and one uh, African student would be a group. And they had to work together digitally. And that was fun to see. I know some of them were leaving each other voice messages, others were Skyping or just writing emails, but they already got to know each other. So then arriving there, you already had your buddy. You already had someone you knew, and at the same time, you got very different input on your PhD research when you had to pitch what you're working with. Yeah. Cool. I heard some stories about this massive Skype meeting that you had before the course started uh, with, like I don't know, what was it? 50 people or something? <laughs> <laughs> Not completely, but I think it was the biggest uh, Skype meeting I ever hosted. So I said uh, we had 10 countries at least. And I mean, we were a big group with all the supporting stuff and everything. We had 20 students and then we had uh, all the teachers. So we were more than 30 and everyone had to Skype in. <laughs> and with Skype, you always have this one moment when you think, this is not going to work. But in the end, it worked, and we were all digitally united at one point, and it was fun, and it worked really well, I think, to get to know each other. Everyone had a moment to say who you are, where you're coming from, and also you could already see each other, and that was a great kickoff meeting. And it was kind of releasing the tension as well. Like In the beginning, we had certain challenges with the technology, and then somebody pointed out, because there were two parallel conversations going on, so somebody pointed out that there are people in the parallel universe and... <laughs> Yeah, we had a lot of uh, laughing directly from the first one. And I think it was a good meeting as it was, maybe we had some technical difficulties, but it also broke the ice. And I think it was one of the points that Joris and me also wanted to make that this is a very, it's a course, it's formal, but at the same time, it's also informal. We're meeting on eye level. 
So no matter if you're a teacher or a student in the course, we meet to discuss and learn all. And I think that really helped with those first kind of turbulent meetings uh, and just getting the right tone and also giving a lot of room for the students in this first kickoff meeting to say, what do you expect from this course? Because we're adaptive, we're flexible, we can still make adjustments according to your wishes. And we try to have a course where really the students can give input during and say, we want more of this or we want more of that. Hmm. I think I'm just an idea popped into my head that maybe Skype actually is problematic on purpose to make people come together. Because, for example, my interview to this PhD position, we had so much Skype problems and it also really broke the ice between me and my now then supervisor because... Yeah, we had to sit like shoulder to shoulder and lean over the computer to so that the Skype people could hear us. And it was, we never met before. It was awkward, but also nice. Kind <laughs> of like, get over this. So maybe yeah. it's yeah. Skype on purpose doing this. <laughs> Technology bringing people together. Yes. From that <laughs> yeah, it connects you in those situations <laughs> yeah. when suddenly you don't hear each other and then you start signing or lip reading. Yeah. Or then someone didn't shut off their microphone. And we, I think, was it pigs? We heard animals in the background. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then the other one, birds. And I was like, okay, where does that come from? Let's check. We have 35 people. Who's having it on? And who's having that bird in the background the whole time? <laughs> Who knows what bird it is? Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't get me started with that. This was a birding course if, unfortunately <laughs> I would say for my interest but birds were a big part yeah. <laughs> we but I guess there's cool yeah. birds there absolutely and so diverse mm. so many birds uh, also we were doing like once we got into the uh, area where we started the course we were doing a lot of game driving also in the mornings everybody were excited to wake up at five or six excited Just, uh, yeah really really excited <laughs> okay. of course you're very uh tired in the morning but then you have your cup of coffee and you start going to the game drives and looking for birds and especially being in one of the South African groups uh, with uh, Francois he's a South African South African guy and he knew so much about birds and I didn't know much before this course and I felt like learning from each other and learning from the locals you know about the birds and other species animal species also so that was really interesting mm -hmm. But I recognize this. I also had field work with two very bird interested people, persons, and we also stopped a lot. Just, oh, look, there's a bird. Let's stop and look at the bird. And I was like, I want to have pizza. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we became quite pragmatic. So uh, after the first few days, we always called in the, in the morning, kind of, who's the bird car? So then we tried to stop all the birders into one of the game vehicles. And then we others didn't have to stop for every little flying thing hmm. on yeah. the way. So, <laughs> so that was compromise. a good solution. Yes. They were happy and we went on to see lions and elephants instead. Mm. <laughs> Sounds cool. Yeah. But I've never been to South Africa, so it would be cool to hear both of your impressions of that. I think it's amazing. It's an amazing country to see and to experience. And I was lucky it was now the second time that I went there. And I did twice now road trips. And I always feel like that's a way to see more of a country than just doing the typical tourist thing. And then one of my good friends, she's from South Africa, so she was driving with me, and then you you learn much more about culture or just everyday life and what she's telling you, and we met friends of hers, so that was really a great experience. But from speaking a wildlife perspective, it's amazing to go there. I mean, not only Kruger Park, where we were in the end with the course, but also other game reserves. It's just so much wildlife to see. 
I mean, when we went into Kruger, we went through the gate. It took us less than two minutes, and we had an elephant. And coming from uh, other countries, I mean, for me, it was like, okay, there's an elephant. Okay, and then you start processing it. And I think I had it with my first trip to South Africa and also with this one. You take pictures, but it's nearly too much to handle all the impressions. It's so much wildlife wherever you look. It's so much, but also cultural. It's very colorful. It's lots of things going on. And afterwards, you nearly need the same time just to process all the input you got and to reflect also what were really the differences, what are the similarities. And it's an experience that you don't forget. Yeah, building on that also, like, I used to be in Cape Town for some time and then saw the Western Cape area in South Africa. And now going to Kruger, it's completely different. It's within the same country, but the biome is completely different. And the animals and the cultures also around you are completely different. And I think there's 11 different official languages, and that's only the official languages within the country. And 11? 11, yeah. Oh, my God. So imagine if uh, in Finland we have only two, Swedish and Finnish. and. Mm -hmm. That just uh, tells something about the diversity of the cultures and people there. And like Sabrina mentioned, the amount of wildlife is insane. There's uh, so many different antelope and you see elephants and rhinos and lions and African wild dogs. It's a little bit overwhelming in the beginning to get used to all that. And uh, But it's really useful to also have... Uh, local guides with you, local people telling you about the ecology of these animals and yeah, I think through that kind of a process you can learn quite a bit. And now that we were in the course, uh, I think it was one of the first days that we started started the course. We were just driving around in Kruger and we were we had a professor or an instructor with us in each car and uh, who was telling us about the environment in Kruger, about the geology, about the ecology of plants and animals, about management history in the area. So I think, yeah, through that kind of a scouting over in the Kruger area, we got a little bit more familiar with the system that we were now visiting. And that kind of like also helped to conceptualize the more abstract things that we talked about in the course about management and adaptive management. Yeah, and that was also one of the ideas we had with that kind of where are we actually having this first day where we just go and we see a lot and you talk about where are we you talk about savanna ecology uh, because everyone was a lot of the students were flying in and then they landed in Johannesburg and then the first afternoon everyone had to go to the apartheid museum because we felt it's an important part of the history and you can still see the effects and it's important to understand that bit as well but then they Next morning, they all had to get up really early and had a, was it six, seven hour drive uh, to Kruger Park? And then the next day after, they spent another 10 hours in the car. But it was like, we want to show you everything in the beginning just to have the setting. And then we can work from that on. And I think it was a good, uh, oh, for me as a lecturer, it was also very, very interesting because I didn't know much about Savannah Ecology or Kruger Park in general. And we went around and all the students, everyone had uh, one chapter prepared. So there's a book about Kruger and everyone had to read one chapter. And then we just randomly stopped and there was a chapter eight. And then whoever chapter eight was had to give a five minute speed talk about what they learned, what the chapter was about. So we heard about water management, about elephants, about invasive plants, all the kind of topics in a very informal, but very nice and personal way also. Everyone had their five minutes of fame. Oh, that's a good, 
good activity to do. Mm. Yeah, and talking about learning environments, uh, I think that's kind of a best way for a student to learn while you're emerged in the environment itself and you hear people talking about something in front of you, about plants and about burnt scars that you can see. And that leads to another topic of fire management in the park. And it's just uh, this kind of a very organic way of talking and very, yeah, natural way of learning. And like Sabrina, Sabrina mentioned, then stopping in a nice spot and hearing about the student presentations. I think that kind of a learning environment is uh, something new to me as well uh, that I haven't had in previous courses that I've I've done so far. And then there were also a bunch of other uh, deliverables or activities that we were doing. And one of them very be in the very beginning was we had to prepare a presentation on our own country's uh, topic of wildlife management. So I, first, for instance, did a presentation on grouse management in Finland. And we had presentations on elephant management in Thailand and a lot of different things, wolf uh, management in Norway. And that was kind of also breaking the ice. It was uh, one of the first days that we started doing these presentations and kind of also getting to know each other's background, you know, the countries that we come from, but still within the topic of uh, wildlife management. And then like in that first presentations, you kind of like start getting an idea of the comparative aspect of the course of the wildlife management, how it's done differently in each country. You know, there's no one silver bullet solution, but each country seems to do things a little bit differently uh, based on the context, the societal context and the environmental context that they are embedded in. Yeah, and then the other deliverables that we had included, uh, like I think one of the most biggest one that we had was this group project on adaptive wildlife cases. And it was kind of just to yeah, divide ourselves into groups uh, of people from different backgrounds and also from different, yeah, different uh, geographical areas as well. And we had four different groups. Uh, one had a task to prepare a presentation on adaptive wildlife management on overabundant species, such as elephant and wild boar. And one group were talking about scarce species, uh, like white rhino and European bison. And one group was invasive group, so they were talking about raccoon dogs and African wildcats. And what was the last group about? Carnivores. So Carnivores, then we had yeah. the European wolf and uh, the jackals in South Africa. And I mean, the whole idea with this comparative was that often... You get so focused on your own research that you don't see the bigger picture or you don't see the big pattern behind it. And I think especially within our PhDs, I mean, I'm a PhD myself, you dive into your topic and then you kind of might lose the bigger scheme or the bigger things that are going on. So the idea was to have a system perspective and compare those two species. And at first you would say, well, what does a wild boar have in common with elephants? And that's also what the students asked directly. How do those two fit together? Or the rhino and the bison group, they started comparing ecological facts. And I was like, this is not about that. It's more, what are the conflicts? What are the issues? And then we had a systematic way how to work backward, kind of. What is the issue? What's the thing threatening the species? Or what is the problem? 
Who's actually driving that? What are the factors that are contributing? Who's doing that? So we kind of work background, backward on those chains of what's causing what. And then in the end, very often, you saw the same patterns emerging. It was socioeconomic factors. It might be uh, financial interests. It might be urban versus rural conflict. So then when you map it out, you actually see the systems are quite similar. It's just a different species and maybe in a different country, but we see similar roots to the conflict. And I think that's also good for everyone in a PhD, kind of make this zoom out of your topic and see what is it really that's driving the things. And don't we see that in other studies and maybe see what are the parallels and what makes my case unique? Yeah, and that's actually a very good demonstration and like exercise to do to exactly get more perspective on your own species because we're focusing so much for four years on one topic. So this, like you said, also kind of like helps us to zoom out and think about the other factors that are also influencing our system and how are things done differently in other places. Oh, I and guess it also helps that you had a diverse student group that had different experiences and yeah. different, uh, like, uh, I don't know, animals that they think about when they think about management. Yes. And I think also having those different backgrounds from from the lecturers helped. As I was saying, I'm teaching a human dimension course. For, so for me, often, the focus is on people. What are the human factors that are driving it? And then Camilla, my supervisor, I mean, she's a political scientist. She might more ask those system questions from a governance perspective. How does the governance system look like? Well, then the ecologists rather say, well, what is actually driving this threat? Or what is the threat to the population? So I think when we went around and gave input on the different projects, we had very different questions and we asked them, even so we all looked at the same map. It's very nice. And then going forward with the activities that we did, one of my favorite activity, actually, uh, it was we had to present we had to organize an activity for school kids. And the school kids were all the way between like six and 12, 12 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we were given, our group was given the youngest kids. And it was intimidating. It was really scary uh, because, yeah, just to go go there and organize an activity for kids. And I have no idea what kind of activity they would like and how engaged they would be. And having these kind of fears... Uh, and going into the uh, school, it was actually very interesting to see how really keen the kids were. And maybe just to explain a little bit more about the activity, we were again divided into different groups and we had to come up with an activity for a group of people. And I, I think our group was the biggest. It was almost a hundred students, but it was the divided. Kids or yeah, mm. kids. And it was divided into two different groups. So we had 50 kids at a time that's a lot so that, yeah that was <laughs> yeah. interesting so in total we had 300 kids so it was a primary school in Skagusa oh. and I think that was also that was a surprise for us on the lecturer side because we talked about the school activity and we always thought about a class but then actually the principal of the school said well they would be so disappointed if we only pick one class they all want to meet you so we set aside a whole morning and you have all of them it's 300 <laughs> and we felt like Okay, we have 20 PhD students or 19, we're the lecturers, and then we have 300 kids uh, that want to do some fun activity. And I mean, this was, of course, not a random thing we planned in the course. It was linked to one of our learning outcomes uh, that we want to challenge how you talk about science 
or how you talk about your own research and think how you can phrase it or also how you articulate yourself. And I think that's something that's important for every scientist to learn. You have to be able to break it down and explain it to a kid or to another fellow scientist. And it has to be at the appropriate level. So then with the kids, as they were from six to 12 years, um, we said, well, we want to talk about ecology or some um, biological topic or science in general. So the idea was also to talk about science or scientists in general, but make it fun. And then I think it was just amazing what all the PhD students came up with. The ideas, I mean, we talked about food net or food webs. And they made games with the kids, but it was so visual and easy to understand. And you should have seen the kids' eyes. I mean, they were like sitting there and you had 15 kids and they were quiet because they were amazed how it works. And then it was always linking back to, so this is what science does. So they had a food web and then they had some poison coming in and all oh, the kids were shocked because poison was bad. And they had like a string attached from different kids. So each kid had a little sign around. One was a lion, one was a zebra, one was grass. And then they had a string attached showing always who eats whom or who depends on whom. And then poison came in with scissors and cut those strings. You should have seen those kids. They were like, <gasps> but then luckily signs came. So we had scientists coming in and they tied again the knots in between with and the lab fixed coat. it. With a, well, they had little signs around <laughs> yeah. and then management came and helped. And I mean, it was very visual and easy, but at the same time, I think it really got a message across. Sounds super fun. I would like to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and the kids were participating in it as well. So uh, we were just giving them, assigning them as grass or lion or giraffe. So we started like on the bottom of the Nobody tropic levels. Nobody wanted to be grass. Or <laughs> yeah. Like in the beginning, they were really happy to be grass. But then when we introduced a zebra, everybody wanted to be a zebra. Mm. And then later... A lion. Lion. Yeah. Oh, I mean, and then they... It was three different age ranges. So it was like six to eight and then eight to 10 and 10 to 12. And of course it was adapted. So the 10 to 12, they had more advanced projects. So one group, they learned how to build water filters. So it was uh, using different kind of soil, clay, leaves, and they had to come up with a perfect water filter and then learn about different densities and stuff. The other group, they were catching insects and then identifying them. So they did small experiments and then they compared across groups and then you could tie it to sampling design. So we always tried to make the link to a bigger science topic. Or uh, The middle group, they also had a game about a food web and then they had to run around and kind of the lions had to eat their um, prey species and the other ones had to go to get water and grass and in the end they had to discuss what was their strategy and by that you could link it to trade-offs. Are they choosing safety or are they choosing to go for the resources? So then you could again link it to bigger topics. It's very advanced topics for for those, I mean, the age. But if you make it in this kind of way, it sounds super fun. And I guess it also makes it easy for a six-year-old will, will take something different from that exercise than a 12-year-old probably. But yeah, completely. Super cool. You guys should both be hired by Natur Skolan here in Umeå or something. <laughs> But I also thought about like um, outreach in general that it's so important and not that we just we do so much good science and we yeah sometimes we're not great at getting it out there but this is one way we're doing it now and I also thought about the soapbox science um, event that we have in Umeå that we could give a shout out to yes. was it the 18th of May right 
Uh, yes, and um, actually that also inspired us. So I've been involved in planning it last year. So book signs, Umia, reoccurring thing now. Um, and we did something similar in yeah. South Africa, actually. We oh, called really? it Wild Science Talks. So it wasn't uh, as long. It was five minutes per person. But we also had a wooden box to step on. Mm. And we hosted it at the main tourist camp in Kruger National Park one evening. Like and a public open event? A public mm. open event. We made advertisement before. And then everyone, it was like, it, it looked like a stand-up comedian thing, kind of. But of course, it was still science and it was uh, very interesting, I think, for the audience. Most of them stayed the whole time. And then everyone had to jump up on the box and you had five minutes to talk about your PhD research. Hmm. But in an interesting way or try to... Try to explain why does it matter? What is it about and why do you need to know that? Oh, so all the students in the course did this? Yes, yeah. and you can actually see them online if you're oh, still really? interested. So we oh, recorded. We can put the links in the description. Yeah. Yeah, we have a good. blog and you can watch all of them. They're five minutes, short clips, but very interesting and fun to watch. Oh, yeah, yeah. you have a blog too. We'll also put that, a link to that. Yeah, yeah definitely. Episode. And I think it was uh, very fun to come up with the topics and the titles. Did you use any talks. props for the presentations yeah they were kind of a for example yeah if i give some examples of the titles one was uh what's the difference between lion and your mother-in-law <laughs> and uh, and one was also about did you know that geese can make your stomach upset keys geese as in geese. yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. mm. uh, did you know that moose like candy mm -hmm. mm. but what was yours then ollie uh, mine was uh did you know that white rhinos can can act as a Air conditioning of the savannas. Air conditioning. Yeah. Mm. So that was trying to link the idea that uh, white rhinos keep vegetation short and that influences the carbon sequestration and the solar reflectance of the vegetation. Mm. So, But it was fun. So they reduced temperature like, a, uh, uh, what is what did you say? Air conditioning, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Air conditioning, cooling it down. Cool. But yeah. It was a also fun audience. We had a very interactive audience because many of the talks were uh, interactive, asking questions to the audience, and the audience was also answering. And it was uh, set in this uh, tourist center in Skukusa. So it was a small kind of a bar vibe outdoors, and there was a shade under which we were presenting. Were there a lot of people? Yeah, I think uh, like listening? eventually there quite a lot of people came there. Yeah, yeah, it was... Uh... I mean, it's always tricky. How do you make people who are tourists on their holiday stay for science? But I think it worked really well because it had this quick turnover, so it never got boring. You never knew what's coming next. Or, I mean, you just had a catchy headline where everyone was like, what might they talk about? So I think it was a, a good event. And we got positive feedback afterwards. And I think everyone enjoyed it. I had a lot of the students were just smiling, enjoying themselves and I think you can see it when you watch the videos. Yeah, and it, it was, was really, really nice. Fun. Yeah, really nice group dynamics. People were encouraging each other and like applauding and yeah, fun. Yeah. And once again, it was one thing where you had to think about your own research, but also in broader terms. Why does it matter? Or why should anyone be interested? Why do we need to know that? Hmm. So I think that's very valuable also when you're finishing with your PhD or when you write your kappa in the end. What's the bigger picture? Why hmm. do we need it? Yeah, the so. kappa is like the uh, uh, introduction or the yeah. uh, whatever. Kind of the framing. Yeah, framing of the entire thesis. Yeah. Mm. But then Soapbox Science, is uh, they are a bit longer, the talks? Yeah. Right? So with Soapbox Science, uh, we have four speakers that are always simultaneously running. 
and they have one hour. So they have their soapbox giving their presentations, but they're one hour at the scene and you can just pass by, ask questions, interact with them. And it's only women. It's only women because that's one of the missions with Soapbox Science uh, to promote women in science or in those uh, more natural science uh, disciplines and also to kind of show that women can be scientists at all levels uh, and bring science to the street. That's the other mission. Break it down. And I think it's important to say not dumb it down because that's not a thing, but just find the right way how to communicate your science. I think we can be so into the topic that we don't really realize we're using very specific language that's not clear to everyone. And by that, we kind of lift ourselves up or separate us from community. So this was about using everyday language. Yes. Yeah, it's and a where very is it, by cool the way, going to happen? What's it's the in place? the city center, right? Yes. It's in the city center in front of the city hall on the 18th of May. During Ooh. the day, right? During the day, yes. Fun. We should all go there. Absolutely. Definitely. Yes. I was, I'm super curious about your like uh, a most exciting memory from this course. Oh, that's a good question. There are actually a lot of different exciting memories, but I think one that comes to mind. Oh, you can give several if you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one that comes to mind was, I think it was the last week that we were uh, in the course. And in the morning, I just woke up at five. It was one of these days that we were sleeping a little bit longer, so we didn't have a Not game to drive. five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> At least six or seven. You know? Oh, wow. And uh, I just like wake up to this calling of the monkeys, the velvet monkeys on the roof and jumping and screaming. And I'm like, what are they doing? Are they fighting? Is there like a huge fight going on or something? But I just let it be and slept for a little bit longer and then went uh, to the kitchen and started having breakfast. And just when I took my morning cup of coffee, I think it was Graham who came and he's like, have you seen these lions, these lions? And there's, uh, yeah, we just go and they're like lions, uh, maybe 100 meters, 150 meters from the fence. And they're just casually walking there. And uh, when, the room, uh, when the word got out that there are lions, everybody woke up and everybody were in the cars within five minutes. And we went, uh, yeah, we just drove to the lions and we could see them maybe from five meters away they were literally very close to the car and we were just admiring them and that was a exciting morning you know your morning coffee starts kicking in and you're looking at these lions and they're just chilling there but you had some kind of fence around where you s the houses or where you slept or something yeah there was there okay. was a it was a fenced area yeah makes sense yeah <laughs> yeah and i think that's also something you have to get used to or to think about so because uh, that's not that I there's mean, actually yeah. things out there that might or could potentially eat you yeah. and that was something i learned when traveling the first time to south africa we were on the road and then uh, our car broke down and you know naturally you try to jump out see what's wrong and then someone said well one has to look out for lions i was like mm. <laughs> That is yep. very different from <laughs> Sweden, where if I need to change a tire, I just go out. I don't have to watch my back. Kind watch of. out for the moose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, I mean, that's something you have to get used to. And also when we were in the camp, of course, everything has gates and fences and you don't walk around uh, alone outside. You're always in a car and you're not allowed to get out of the cars. Yeah, I think we're very used to this extremely safe like forest or wilderness here in Sweden. We have a lot of forest, but basically nothing that is very dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it's no problem walking around in the forest by yourself in the middle of nowhere. It's yeah. Fine. yeah, exactly. And I mean, you never think about those situations, but I, 
I was driving quite a lot uh, one of those game vehicles with the students in the back. And then we were going on a morning drive and we turned around a corner and there were two cars and an elephant. And it was a very small road and suddenly the elephant started chasing one of the other cars. <laughs> and that car drove straight towards us. And then suddenly I heard the eight students in the back screaming, back, back, back. So I took in the reverse and then we had to reverse very quickly because there was a very angry elephant coming our way chasing that other car. And then we had this moment where this other car and me backing up parallel shooted down this wave still by this elephant. I think that was one of the memorable moments. You do get a little adrenaline kick in this True. situation. A little, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it led off and it went into the bush and it was fine. But then afterwards, we continued our game drive and it was silent in the back, which was not the normal case for the students. And I think they all reflected about life and safety and all those things. Uh, yeah, I mean, those are memorable moments that you don't forget and that you normally don't have in any Scandinavian country most often. No. <laughs> Being chased. Yeah. Not or reversing really. back. <laughs> not by uh, wild animals. No. Yeah. Uh, that sounds very intense. Very intense. And having that, like looking at the elephant from your car, you know, you can see that it's huge, like 5,000 kilos or so, and it's running towards you and you feel suddenly so small. Yeah, because in pictures, they don't look, they, of course, they look big, but it's the same if you see a picture of a moose and then you see one in real life, you're like, oh my God, this is huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> an elephant, yeah, I can't even imagine. Yeah. No, yeah. But I mean, it's those, uh, you kind of need to adapt your behavior. It's this. <laughs> As soon as you're coming close to elephant, you don't turn off the car. You know, if we watch impalas or other wildlife, you might turn off the car. So it's very still and they can take pictures. But with elephants, you don't turn off the car. And depending on what's your flight route, you might already shift to first gear or reverse just to be prepared. Mm. Is that the like most dangerous animal that you encountered? Or uh, what would you say? Yeah, there are also like, uh, you would say buffaloes. Uh, are quite dangerous if you're walking because sometimes they can just like run towards you and you can't make them stop. Uh, they can just come and charge at you and then it's too late. And of course, yeah, when you're walking in the field and if you're walking in the field, then you have a guard with you, but uh, who's always in charge of the situation. And then, of course, there are different dynamics compared to when you're in a car. Hmm. And then... Black rhinos, for example, can also turn out to be quite challenging if you encounter them uh, and you get caught, get, yeah, how do you say, catch them out of guard. Mm. Mm. And I, yeah, but because I think that's important to say that it's also the situation. So not every elephant, of course, chases you. But with the one where we came around, it was clearly that that car, the other car was too close and it was in the way. And I think they didn't see the signs before. You could already see by flapping the ears and going down with the head, you could see the warning signs, but they still stayed too close. So it was kind of provoking. But otherwise, I mean, we had a lot of uh, situations where we were close by elephants or other animals. And you just be prepared and you be respectful. And I think that's often, unfortunately, what happens in national parks, that people are not very respectful about keeping their distance, or going closer and closer to get a bigger picture or a nicer picture. I mean, that's when it happens. Yeah, because that's a very key point to be respectful of the area that you're in. You're there as a visitor in the habitat of these wild animals. And yeah, because Kruger, you were in Kruger National Park for the entire course. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, we made a field trip outside one day, but most of the time we were in the park. And that was also, I think, something surprising. Or I was before, I was in a small game reserve where there was no one around, just us, more or less. And then we went to Kruger. And then you get traffic jams because there is an elephant. I mean, traffic jams in terms of 10 cars waiting. Or if there's a leopard, you will see by cars around. Uh-huh. Someone well, there's sees so it. many people there. Or, or cars. Yeah, well, I, I mean, know. there's a limited amount of, of streets. And then, of course, if someone stops, it's natural that you always slow down because you think, oh, they're seeing something interesting. So even if there's nothing, it might be a small jam because everyone wants to see what's happening. But of course, if there's a great sighting, cars stop and more and more car stops. And suddenly you have like 10 cars in each direction and it might get hard to go forward or even pass by. And that's something I had experienced before in the U.S. and in national parks and then here and it's very different from the national parks back home that I'm used to. Because you're from Germany? I'm from Germany but also I mean going living here in Sweden and going here in the national park is a, yeah you go you go by foot and of course there in you're not allowed to go out of the car but it's a, a different way of experiencing a national park of course. Because it is very big right Kruger National Park? It is. I don't remember the actual area i think with the, uh, not just the park but all the adjoining areas that kind of uh the bigger kruger area was it close to the side of belgium yeah oh, that's what really? i really oh my god please don't quote me if i'm wrong but it was like yeah. a, a small but european country just to get size. a, get a yeah. f- feel for it kind of yeah. yeah but then we also wanted to have a day trip out of the park so we just get kind of experiences from how is it for communities living on the borders because from a wildlife perspective, we often have human-wildlife conflicts surrounding the buffer zones of national parks. And then we met uh, local NGOs, and I think that was really interesting, because before we talked about the role of NGOs in wildlife management, seeing them as stakeholders or important uh, influencers, and then we met them, and they talked about their challenges, their mission, how they work with the local communities, and it was really nice to get this hands-on experience. Just to... I'm not super familiar about the these conflicts that occur. What are what are the the, the main point points of conflict, or what is the like oh, issue? Or often it's about uh, wildlife creating damages. It could be crop raiding. It could be um, carnivores preying on on livestock, because in national parks. Uh, you might not have any management in ter- terms of uh, decreasing the number of animals. And then, of course, uh, national parks, they're not always fenced. Often they have natural boundaries, so animals can get in and out. And I mean, this is also good from a, yes, from a, yes, a ecological, uh, ecological setting. But of course, you might have uh, communities around uh, that then are becoming more or less vulnerable to those impacts. And then there are local conflicts about animals creating negative effects for human livelihoods Hmm. so it's like the same with in sweden with the wolves it's like yeah ecological but also that they create damages for people Mm. Hmm. that was an interesting uh interesting field trip to houtsprout i hope i I said the name correctly but yeah just to see all these different ngos coming together and they were also talking about their challenges i think very realistically and not trying to paint rosy picture but they were like explaining what they're doing but also explaining what are yeah what kind of challenges there are and what are the potential ways to overcome it and i think that was a really good experience from that perspective and i think yeah the other field trips that we did 
included an invasive plant excursion. And that was interesting. We got a staff member from Sand Parks who showed us uh, some plots where invasive plants had been taking over and then explained a little bit about the clearing on invasive plants and the management of them and how how it's happen, happening in Kruger. And Is that a common problem in South Africa, the invasive species? I, I, I don't know. I just think of, of Australia. <laughs> Always people talk yeah. about invasive species. But um, yeah, you talked about raccoon dogs, right? They're not native. Yeah, raccoon dogs like being um, here in uh, northern Europe, northern and eastern Europe. And feral cats. Feral cats would be kind of the equivalent. So house cats that have just escaped uh, into the wild and they are causing a lot of different problems. For example, they are hybridizing with the African wild cat, uh, which are also in like very threatened species. And um, other excursions that we did included uh, game capture. So we went to see into the bomas of uh, sand parks and we were told about uh, the game capturing methods, which to me at least was very exciting to see how it's actually done. So when there's a, yeah, when the vets need to go into the field and dart animals and maybe relocate them or treat them medically, uh, they were explaining how this process is done. And this is like part of, of managing the national park. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. And then, then we also had like a meet and greet with the scientific services of Kruger National Park. And that was quite late in the course, but that was also for us uh, kind of, we discussed a lot of theoretical things and we had lectures about adaptive management and the students worked on their cases and different species. And then it was actually talking to those who do it in practice there. How are they thinking it's going? What are the challenges and kind of get feedback from the ones having the experience? And I think that was really valuable. Yeah, it was. And we were like, at the same time, we had our country-specific management posters that we did already in the beginning of the course. We had them with us and the staff could then ask questions about our projects. And that was kind of an icebreaker also that they could approach us and or we could approach them with our topics. And then it was cool to see also, because we've been talking a lot to scientists and the scientists' perspective on the management, but it's very important and valuable to have a perspective on the practitioners mm. and the managers what they're doing yeah it sounds like you you got a lot of different um, parts covered with the both outreach and talking about science in um, a relatable way but also to yeah ngos or the people who actually use your results, hopefully, in real practice. Yeah, cool. and actually our results, if you can call it like that, uh, were also used later on by other students. Because with those four different groups that worked on the adaptive management courses, they were video, or we were video recording their final presentations, and then we used them in a flipped classroom teaching. So we had here in Sweden, back home, uh, master students in the human dimension class. So they had to watch the video lectures and prepare questions and then we had another round of exciting Skype meetings with all the <laughs> students from the 10 different countries uh, calling in and meeting 15 Swedish master students talking about adaptive wildlife management and what are differences, similarities between species. So it was uh, students became teachers. It was an 
it was a nice experiment. I think it worked very well. I don't know how the student perspective on that one is. Yeah, it did work very well. The only problem for me was that I was in Shushluwe in Falosi Park at the moment with very limited internet connection. So I was cutting off from internet every now and then. So I kind of like heard half of the conversations. But based on the half that I heard, it was very insightful. And also the fact that the master students picked really, really important points on our presentations and could very critically assess it, which I really liked that they were asking a lot of critical questions and we were kind of like explaining our thought process on the background then. And it was cool to step into the shoes of a teacher just for a moment and kind of see that perspective also. I think it's funny that you said there was bad internet. That was also one of the things where most of us got a reality check that some of the luxuries that we're so used to are not always there, not normal, like having non-stop good internet connection, having always uh, warm running water or electricity. I think that was um, interesting for some of us or experience. With the internet, you're so used to always using it. If I need something, I quickly Google. And then we were having this blog and I just remember one day I wanted to upload one video and it told me it's going to take 700 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. And I mean, that was if the connection holds, would hold for those 700 <laughs> minutes at all. So, I mean, that and then we had um, outside showers, which were warmed by um, solar panels. And uh, I mean, it was a nice experience being out in the morning at four, taking an outside shower and it was warm enough. We had, what did we have, 45 degrees one <laughs> yeah, day. It was really mm. the hot, hot time of the year. Uh, and the next morning, there was a huge tree lying on our showers that fell over. So it's this different kind of setting where you never know what's happening. Or with a classroom experience, you start lecturing, suddenly electricity is gone and the generator kicks in and then you need to improvise. Hmm. Well, it is cool to have these courses, like to travel and have courses abroad because you could never have that entire experience here. Okay. Even you can talk about the same topics, like science-wise, and uh, do a lot of activities, but it will never never be the same. No, and also living together, like teachers and lecturers. I mean, we were all staying in the same camp, 16 days, 24-7. We had all meals together, uh, the students and also the lecturers, we had to share rooms. Uh, I mean, I was sleeping in a tent for three weeks. It was a different experience, but it, I think it really contributed in a way because you never stopped discussing things and you got to know each other uh, on a different level. And you could also sit down just having a cup of coffee or during the meals and still discussing topics from class. So we really kind of zoomed into our own little universe about global perspectives on adaptive management. It was this bubble and at the same time at this wonderful, wonderful spot in Kruger and going on game drives. And as Oli said, I mean, three weeks, every morning I got up at four and it was not hard because you were so eager to see the next ex next exciting day and just see wildlife. So, yeah. Yeah, that was really ex uh, exciting. The whole process of being being there with that group of people. And like Sabrina mentioned that we got so, yeah, we got to know each other so much better than just having a course where everybody comes to lectures from eight to four. But because, yeah, you were discussing and also like I felt like uh, practicing and preparing for our activities, like the school activity and the wildlife management cases. And 
each of these activities, we had a different group of people and in different group of people always we had different dynamics and it was a lot of fun. So we made, yeah, yeah, we were laughing a lot. But at the same time, we learned, at this, uh, yeah, I learned a lot from the topics that we were preparing from presenting and hopefully we managed to also make a small impact on other people's lives like uh, uh, the tourists that came to see our wild science talks and also the kids that we made this activity that was hopefully fun and it was also so special afterwards after the school activity when like many kids came and they were like high-fiving us or hugging us and thanking us for being there and they really seemed to enjoy it. Yeah, I think one of the highlights overall was definitely for me the last evening. So, I mean, we stopped uh, the, or when the course ended. We had this final round of everyone had to give a short reflection of how the course was. And I think somehow it influenced us all and it got quite emotional for some Indeed. of us. And it was just, uh, I think from a lecturer perspective, we all felt like it went so well. I mean, it was a, it was a first trial. We have never given this course before. Would everything work? Yeah, there were little hiccups with no electricity or we had to move a field trip because we didn't get game guards. But everyone was interested and everyone was eager. And we never had the feeling that we had to motivate the students. It was rather we had to try to slow down things because it got so intense. We had nonstop program and we had nonstop activities. And then you sit there and you see what's the outcome. And we had the round of students saying how they felt. And a lot of them said it was the best course they ever had. Or it changed their life. It changed how they see their PhD. It gave them energy to go forward. And that kind of was the best moment. I mean, we started with a random talk in a hallway here in northern Sweden. And then we were sitting there after three weeks. And we had 20 people who said, this changed my life. Amazing. I'm still getting goosebumps when I yeah, just talk about it, but it was this, uh, it made a difference. And I think that's nice to see with science, with that kind of activity. And I think we all went and we got emails afterwards from some of the students. One was, um, she hasn't started her PhD yet. And then she wrote, this convinced me completely. After being in this course, I definitely want to be a scientist. I mean, what more can you ask for? Yeah. What more can you ask? I think that was a perfect wrap-up of this Definitely. episode. Or what do you think, Oli? Yeah, I have not, nothing to add anymore. And that was just, yeah, very good to have you here, Sabrina, to talk to us. And thank you so much for coming. Thanks yeah. a lot thank for having so me. And don't forget, this course will come back. It will yeah. come back. If so we haven't Emily, convinced you, also, you yet, yeah. I don't know what will. <laughs> no, but I will put the, the links to the the course and the blog the blog and so that you can see the videos and everything and we will have some nice pictures too from the course yeah awesome Definitely. so thanks everybody for listening to this episode of wild research bites and we'll we we don't know exactly what we're planned for next week but or next month but you will you will see it's gonna come as a surprise yes so talk to you later bye 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 bye, bye.